So Luke chapter 1, and we begin at the fifth verse as we give our attention to the holy word of God. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord 
has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. We'll end our reading this morning there in Luke's gospel. May God bless his word to us. It's in Galatians 4, chapter 4, that the Apostle Paul makes this wonderful proclamation. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. When the fullness of time, just the right time, had come, God sent forth his Son. Beloved, God is sovereign. He has a perfect plan. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. As we look together at Luke's gospel, we are seeing God's plan being worked out, fulfilled in this first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at that theme of fulfillment a little bit last time in Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That theme of fulfillment is in our reading this morning in verse 20. The angel refers to his words, which will come true at their appointed time. What a blessing and comfort it is to know that God is the sovereign God. Daniel 4, we read, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? What a blessing to know that for all of God's children, all those born again and trusting in Jesus, that sovereignty belongs to your Father in heaven. And his sovereignty is always mingled with his love and grace and mercy and care for his children. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And at the climax of God's plan, his eternal plan, at the center of how God brings good to his people is the birth Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's what Luke is telling us about. What God, through Luke, the Holy Spirit, carrying along Luke, is revealing to us. Luke, in chapter 1, one writer said, is writing about the threshold of the supremely important period in the history of humanity. The appearance of Jesus is the central and most important event of all time. And Luke is writing this. He's writing this orderly account to Theophilus. But Luke begins not with Jesus himself, but with events related first to a man named John, usually called John the Baptist, perhaps better John the Baptizer, as some have said. Calling him John the Baptist might give the wrong idea to our ears. 
That wasn't the denomination that he belonged to. He didn't subscribe to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. We'll look more carefully at John next time, Lord willing, his character, his calling, his unique role in the history of redemption as the forerunner of Christ, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the first of the new. But today, this morning, as we think about this theme of God fulfilling his sovereign plan, working out his plan centered in Jesus Christ, this morning we're going to look at John's parents, as Luke tells us about them, and how they fit into God's plan, and how they wonderfully experienced God's plan themselves, and how they are an example and encouragement, and an encouragement to us in our lives. Now we have four Gospels, you remember, in the New Testament. The Gospel of John begins in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew begins with Abraham in that genealogy, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Mark and Luke start with the one who prepared the way for Jesus, John. And Luke, uniquely, starts with his parents. Last week, if you were here at the dedication service, uh, Mr. Vandermeer recounted the history of God's providence in our congregation. Here we are in this building, and there are questions naturally that come up. Where did it, where did all that begin? Uh, this, this building that, that we're in. How did things get going? Matthew Henry said, it is commonly reckoned a satisfaction and entertainment to know something of early days. And we naturally have those questions. So here, even with John, who is the, the main focus, as it were, of the passage we read, Luke begins first with his parents, tracing even how Luke, uh, how John came onto the stage of human history in telling us about his parents. A priest and his wife. A wife who was also in that priestly family of Aaron. Her name was the same as the wife of Aaron, the first high priest. Exodus 6, verse 23, Elizabeth. The very first high priest Aaron's wife's name was Elizabeth. And this Elizabeth's husband's name was Zechariah. Now, they were real people. Those were real names that their parents gave them. But to the Hebrew ear... Those two names, Zechariah and Elizabeth, would have preached to them every day. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. And Elizabeth means God is my oath, or my God has sworn, or as one person paraphrased it, my God is the absolutely faithful one. That's how they would have heard it with their Hebrew ears. Imagine that, day by day in their home, 
Good morning, the Lord remembers. Well, good morning to you, my God, is the absolutely faithful one. What an amazing message God has in the names of these two individuals. Those names reflect great truths about God. But they're not just pious platitudes. They are meant to be believed and trusted. The Lord remembers. My God is faithful to his promise. Those are truths that every believer needs to believe. But at the same time, those are truths in a fallen world that are often challenged by life. Or at least what we see or what we think about our lives often, or what we think about the church, or about the whole history of the world. We too often live by sight and not by faith. And the questions come up in our hearts. Does God really remember? Is he really faithful to his promises? We know that that is the case if we don't really believe it in our own experience. We know it from Scripture. We can forget that God remembers. Isaiah 49, shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth, burst into song, you mounds, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the church said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. You see, it can happen. It can happen to, to believers. But listen to God's answer. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are always before me. The truths of the names of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the challenge that we have at times to believe it come out so clearly and strongly as we hear about the lives of these two first-century believers. In verse 5, where we began our reading, Luke, the historian, anchors his orderly account with a time reference. What does he say? In the, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. In the days of Herod, the king. This is one of the several Herods mentioned in the New Testament. You have to read carefully to keep them all straight. But this one is most often known as Herod the Great. Herod the Great. He was an Idumean. That means he had uh, descent from people who lived in Edom, south of the Dead Sea. He was called king because he had been nominated king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. And he reigned as a puppet king of Rome from 37 BC to his death in 4 BC. 
But this time reference tells us so much. And to think of it in terms of does God remember and is God faithful? The days of King Herod, what does that mean? What were those days? Well, there are a couple of ways to think about that. At this point in the history of the people of God, there had been no revelation, no prophetic voice for centuries. Since Malachi, they are called the 400 silent years. It's just one leaf in your Bible, but it's 400 years. 400 years of no voice of a prophet among the people. You know, we read the Bible and can sometimes think that God speaking and special revelation and miracles were the norm. They weren't. They were sporadic. They accompanied special events and special times in history. We just read our Bibles and think, that that always happens. It didn't. 400 years of silence, as it were. Reminds us, doesn't it, a little bit of the 400 years in Egypt when the people were in slavery, in misery and distress, crying out to God, praying to God. Had God forgotten them? Was he faithful to his promise that he had made to Abraham? And now again, 400 years of a potential pitfall to faith. 400 reasons every year again for the temptation to unbelief. There was a remnant, of course. There always is. Simeon, Anna, that will meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. Many Jews, no doubt, had become skeptical or cynical or secular, but there was a remnant. But it was a remnant in spite of this long silence from God. And then we think of Herod himself. His reign here is not just meant to be a chronological marker, a time marker, but it it reflects the contemporary context. He was a king who did a lot of things for the people. He had lots of building projects even the restoration of the temple itself. But it was clear that he was doing it. He did it for his own pride and his own legacy. One historian calls him a diabolical monster. Another says that he was crafty and cruel. He was known in paranoia to murder members of his own family. Outwardly, he tried to keep the Jewish uh, food laws, uh, but he would murder his own family. So one historian said it was safer to be a pig in Herod's household than a son. He he murdered his family if he thought they were maybe trying to take his throne. We'll hear about more of his cruelty later on in Bethlehem. And so he was a a token, uh, a picture of cruelty And sin and evil, he was a token of Roman rule over Israel. Some see in him and in this period of time the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until 
He to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Here is a Roman puppet king ruling over Judah. And so these two realities, this silence and this, uh, this king, this evil, wicked king, these two realities you can see might easily tempt people in that day to doubt, to question, has God forgotten? Is he unfaithful to us? Zechariah and Elizabeth named Beg the question. And added to those two things was an intensely personal potential cause for questioning in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth themselves. Verse 7. They were upright, blameless. Verse 7, but. It's like name in the general in the Old Testament, all his, his accolades, but. He was a leper. Well, here, this commendation of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then we come to verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well along in years. Probably only those who've experienced that kind of Providence know the challenge that it could be. But especially, I think, a challenge for Jews at this time. Because they would have been thinking, no doubt, of God's promise to Abraham and the promise of descendants more than the sand of the seashore. And Elizabeth would have said, why not me? And even more, God's promise of a Messiah the seed of the woman. And that hope that many young women must have, might it be me? But Elizabeth was barren and old. To be childless in that culture was seen as a great shame and reproach. And I I think that that comes especially if you think and you remember of the book of Job in the Bible. The book of Job. And when you think of Job, you can imagine some more maybe of the shame and reproach that Elizabeth and Zechariah would have felt. Not just the sadness of not having children, but the insinuations that people would make of some great sin lurking behind that providence. Remember, that's what they said of of Job and his suffering. Who knows what they whispered in the small town in the hills of Judah behind Elizabeth's back. But isn't it amazing? You see what God says in his word. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, we need to understand that in the light of all of Scripture. Righteousness ultimately is by faith alone to be righteous in the sight of God. But there is a righteousness as well 
like Job, as was said of Job, to be blameless in the sight of people. One speaks of your justification and the other our sanctification. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God. They were believers and, and outwardly they were careful to obey and observe all of God's commandments, both moral and ceremonial. And so here is this tension, righteous and blameless and barren. There's a real practical lesson for us here, beloved. God blesses obedience and chastises sin. We know that. But he also has his mysterious providence where we can't and shouldn't connect the dots of providence to personal sin the way that we can so quickly do. The way we do so superficially, either for ourselves or for others. This barrenness was not a punishment for a particular sin. And I hear it too often still in the church. When something that happens to someone and it comes out in one way or another, I wonder what they did. And sometimes people wrestle with it personally. Sat with people for long hours why is God angry with me that this would, would have happened? We need to ask God to search us and know us and see if there be any wicked way in us. But Job, Zechariah, Elizabeth, there's a mystery to it. And we should be very careful before we start connecting dots that God hasn't. But this providence, this painful providence, was a challenge to faith, no doubt, barren and now old age. And you can imagine the questions. Has God forgotten me? Is he unfaithful to me? So you see, both for church and for individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth's own names point to a great challenge for faith. And that challenge exists down to our day as well. The church in our day, our own lives, your own life, does God remember you? Is he faithful to us? Is he faithful to me? Well, we're going to look now at how God in the fullness of time in the days of Herod in the lives of an elderly childless couple does remember and is faithful. In verse 8, we read that Zechariah's division was due to serve at the temple. Under King David, there were 24 divisions of priests, and they would be on call twice a year for a week of service. So two weeks a year, individual uh, times that they would be called for a week of service, and this was Zechariah's time. Zechariah, I think it's helpful to note here, is found in the way of duty. He was doing his duty. Disappointment had not made him bitter. He was still following the Lord, still serving, even though he had that hard providence in his life, even at an old age, there he is, still serving. There are crowds of worshipers gathered in the outer court, uh, lots of witnesses to what was about to happen. Incense was offered 
twice a day on the altar of incense in the holy place, morning and mid-afternoon. This was a -a once-in-a-lifetime privilege for a priest. And now it had come to Zechariah. We read it was by lot, probably to avoid favoritism. It was by lot, but not by chance. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 33. God is fulfilling his plan. Oh, Zechariah, it's your division's turn to serve. Oh, Zechariah, you're the one that gets to offer the incense on the altar of incense. So there's Zechariah, and he's doing his, his duty, his privileged ministry before the Lord. That picture of prayer as incense rises up to God. And an angel appears. 400 silent years. And an angel appears. God is breaking into history again. I love what one writer said. The presence of angels is not novel, but their appearance is. They're all around. We don't see them. The presence of angels is not novel, but their appearance is. And what's Zechariah's response? Well, it's fear. Great fear fell upon him. That's always the initial response of sinful people when they come face to face with God's glory revealed, however that glory is revealed, even in a messenger, a holy angel. Zechariah feared. People today are too glib about heaven. They're too glib about heaven and the the place of the revelation of God's special glory. This is the response that should be expected when God's holy glory is revealed. I fell at his feet like a dead man. This response is natural. And so the only cure can be supernatural. And that's what we hear from the angel. Fear not. Fear not. There's Zechariah. He knows he's a sinner. Fear not. There's Zechariah. He's serving at the temple. Maybe he made a mistake. Maybe he offered something unauthorized, like Nadab and Abihu, and here's an angel coming. Fear not. Fear not. Those are gospel words, beloved. And maybe, maybe someone here this morning... God will use this in the light of Jesus Christ to bring you to faith today. Fear not. Fear not. God can use a word to bring you to faith. Fear not. And why, Zechariah, why fear not? The angel says, God is going to answer your prayer. Uh, It's not coincidental that this revelation after 400 years comes at the time of prayer. Revivals almost always are connected to prayer. God is sovereign in his timing, that's clear, but also God ordains his answers most often in response to his people's prayers. Well, what prayer, people ask? Your prayer is answered. What prayer? Most commentators would say that Zechariah and Elizabeth had probably stopped praying for a son. And that makes sense. They were now old. And 
he was there on official duty. And so he would be praying the prayers that priests prayed at that time of the offering of incense, praying for the salvation of the people of God and and the peace of God through the coming of Messiah. After this offering of incense, the priest would go out uh, to meet the people and pronounce over them the, the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. So what prayer is going to be answered? The angel's answer seems to refer to the prayer of these parents for a child, doesn't it? Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Seems to be the prayer for a child. Probably a prayer from long, long ago. But you see, I hope you see that it is the answer to both. It's the answer to both. They will have a child, and he will be the promised forerunner of the Christ. And his name will be John. John means God is gracious. God is gracious. And the great grace, the great gift of God is the gift of his own son, to whom this John will point the nation. The silence had been long, but God had not forgotten. God's calendar is arranged according to God's wisdom. Your prayer will be answered. I think there's a great encouragement here that God remembers our prayers. Even prayers that we may have stopped praying long ago. Isn't that interesting to think about? One writer said, prayers of faith are filed in heaven and not forgotten. Answers may be long in coming, They may be longer in coming than we are in praying. But God's answers are always in line with his perfect will and his perfect timing. Scripture reveals requests answered immediately, said one, requests answered eventually, and requests denied for a better way. But God hears and God answers. It would have been easy for Zechariah to feel hopeless, praying the same prayers, doing the same thing for so long, like his his fathers and grandfathers for 400 years. It would have been easy for them to feel hopeless personally, but in the fullness of time, God acted. In the days of Herod, God acted. Matthew Henry said, None ought to despair the reviving and flourishing of religion, even then when civil liberties are lost. Israel is enslaved, yet then comes the glory of Israel. Old age barrenness, no obstacle to God. These are all ways to see that salvation is from the Lord. No help in the culture. uh, No help from the people of God themselves. Salvation is of the Lord. This is not man saving himself. This is sovereign grace. This is life from the dead. Like Abraham and Isaac, from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as sand on the seashore. And there's Zechariah, and an angel comes and gives him this answer to his prayer. Zechariah, who as a priest 
The lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. Zechariah knew the Old Testament. He knew about Isaac and Samson and Samuel, children that God gave in a wonderful way to old and aged parents. An angel in the temple had spoken to him, and still, what do we read? Unbelief and doubt. Zechariah said, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. We can understand it, but that Zechariah's response was sinful unbelief is clear from the angel's response in this case. Zechariah says, I'm an old man. And the angel says, well, I'm Gabriel. From the presence of God. And I've come with good news from God. Gabriel, the same Gabriel who appeared to Daniel in chapters 8 and 9 and spoke of the 70 weeks, the 77s, the coming of Messiah. It was time for Messiah to appear. And Zechariah doubted. Unbelief is such a snare. Even to mature righteous saints. We can know things in a theoretical way. We can know that God remembers and God keeps his promises, but in Zechariah's own life, and here's the warning in the lesson, unbelief still arose in his heart. Spurgeon said something, sometimes nothing would surprise us more than the answer to our prayers. We can be of so little faith. So many people have been coming through the doors of this new building. We prayed for it for so long and sometimes we're surprised. Opportunities that many of you have had to speak to people and we're thankful, but sometimes we're too surprised. We're too surprised. Oh, unbelief. Unbelief is a great sin. Unbelief in the ultimate sense, to be unbelieving in Christ, is to be lost and condemned. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Are you believing or unbelieving? They were not able to enter the rest because of their unbelief. As someone once said, unbelief will destroy the best of us, but faith will save the worst of us. Faith in Christ, not faith in my faith, faith in Christ. Zechariah's faith wavered. God doesn't save people with perfect faith. He saves them by a perfect Savior in whom we have faith. Zechariah's faith wavered, not as an, as an excuse for our unbelief, but as an encouragement that we're not alone if we sometimes doubt. But we need to confess our unbelief and repent of it. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith, Luke 17, 5. The boy in Mark, the boy's father in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. And to help Zechariah learn and grow, he was disciplined in love. He couldn't speak, boys and girls, for nine months. 
His unbelief was silenced, and he was silenced for it, said Matthew Henry, unable to speak. Many also suggest that he was unable to hear, based later on chapter 1, verse 62, when they had to make signs to him. The word can mean both. Unbelief, Zechariah, you didn't believe what I said, now you're not allowed to speak. Isn't it amazing that you and I are still allowed to talk? Isn't it amazing that we can still hear? But unbelief brings its own chastisement. Unbelief saps us of comfort and strength and joy. It robs us, as Ryle says, of our inward peace. It weakens our hands in the day of battle. It brings clouds over our hopes. And unbelief can make us deaf, can make us deaf to the word of God, even as we read it, can make us deaf to the preaching of the word of God, can make us deaf to the counsel of gospel friends. Unbelief can make you deaf. And unbelief can close your mouth, can close your mouth in praise to God, can close your mouth in encouraging each other, can close your mouth in speaking to others about Christ. Oh, Zechariah was unbelieving, and he was disciplined. But God is gracious. John would be born. That's what the name means, God's gracious. John would be born when the fullness of Elizabeth's time would come. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Why? I don't know if we can be sure, but I think like Mary, she was no doubt treasuring these things and pondering them in her heart. What a story. Zechariah and Elizabeth would have to tell. What a testimony that the Lord remembers and that God is the absolutely faithful one. May that be your testimony as well.